You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Open with me to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Morning, Holy Cross. It's good to be with you virtually this morning. And as Peter mentioned, we hope that you'll join us uh, tonight for our communion service. It'll be such a wonderful time to get together for this uh, wonderful gathering to pray together and to enjoy the Lord's Supper. If you're still not ready to gather in groups, we understand, uh, but hope that you'll consider to gather with us when you're ready. Well, we continue in our series, and today in Mark 6, we uh, so far have seen how Jesus has proven himself in this narrative to be the authoritative, miracle-working Son of God who has power over the natural world, the spiritual world, can heal disease and sickness, even raise the dead to life. And people have marveled at him. The crowds have gathered, and they're astonished by his authoritative teaching and also his signs and wonders and miracles. But even in the life of Jesus, we see that admiration is short-lived. We know that. We know that the crowds did not uh, worship him and flatter him forever. We know that Jesus didn't die of natural causes. He was crucified. Uh, We know that he encountered intense opposition and rejection as he came with a message uh, to such a degree that people mocked him. They hated him. They ultimately killed him. And rejection of Jesus and his message is, it's not just for him. Jesus tells us that rejection and opposition uh, will come to not just him, but all of his followers. Everyone who follows him and chooses to trust in his message will also encounter opposition and rejection in their life. And our passage today, Mark 6, introduces that very reality to us. Uh, His message is offensive and always has been because at the core of the message of the gospel is that it doesn't matter about your moral accomplishments. They are actually worthless when it comes to being accepted by God. And the only way to salvation and forgiveness of sins is by the grace of God, trusting in faith 
in the person and work and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And that offends us to our core. It offends us. But this same message Jesus gives to his disciples and and tells them, he calls them to himself and he sends them out and says, I give you this message, go and teach it to everyone as well. Naturally, they are going to uh, be confronted with the same kind of opposition and rejection and hatred that Jesus found. And part of the difficulty of that for us, fast forward to being a disciple today, uh, long after Jesus walked on the earth, we see that we are his disciples called to show and tell the message of the gospel. And what makes it so difficult is that we're often gripped by a couple different set of fears when it comes to taking that message into the world. You'll immediately know what these fears feel like as I mention them. The first set of fears is that we don't want to offend anyone, right? We don't want to push anyone away. We don't want to be harsh and potentially push them further away from Christ or the church. We wonder that if we confront people who don't know Jesus uh, too, too soon or even at all, we fear that it might make it easier for them to discredit the gospel entirely because of how we might come across. We want to win people to Jesus. We want to win people to uh, the gospel, but we're afraid sometimes that our confrontation will only push them away further. But then there's another set of fear. Another set of fear is that we don't want to compromise our convictions. We don't want to dishonor Christ. We don't want to be unfaithful to God who has called us to live in this broken world uh, where we will um, find opposition and rejection. Um, and so we're kind of, we kind of hold on to one set or another. Part of the problem and difficulty of living as a faithful disciple today is that we're often gripped by one or the other set of fears. We don't want to offend others and come on too harsh, but we also don't want to be unfaithful to God who has sent us into the world to be a faithful witness for his gospel. Well, today's passage addresses these fears, and as always, Jesus shows us how to think about such things in our life. So we jump right into Mark 6. Jesus shows us that rejection is inevitable in our life. Rejection is inevitable. Here Mark points this out in in his passage. We see that Jesus uh, travels to his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus decides to go there to preach. He was born in Bethlehem, of course, but he grew up in this small town of Nazareth, about just not even 500 people, maybe the size of your graduating high school class or maybe your high school or middle school. And given that, Jesus would know everyone there, most people. Most people would know him. They would remember his upbringing, his childhood. Um, They would remember him as a friend or an acquaintance. And they were struck by his teaching because Just like if you were to go back to your hometown and uh, people might have known you, but maybe there was a long gap between then and now. They were astonished by his teaching. They heard of his miracles. They saw him do an occasional sign and wonder. And they're like, who is this? This is Jesus. We know him from childhood. Look at how he has grown. Look at how he teaches with such conviction. And yet we know that he hasn't been formally trained like other disciples. But then they said, well, wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus the carpenter? Isn't he the, uh, the son of Mary? And they were saying this in such a way that was really nasty. It's as if they were saying, isn't he the boy of that notorious woman who got pregnant long ago out of wedlock? You're telling me the son of that scandalous woman? 
Is the Messiah who's come to take away the sins of the world and be the king over all of Israel and all the world? You see, Joseph and Mary, 30 years prior, we know that this message had come to them from the angel. And telling Mary that you have been, you're conceived, you bear within your womb the Son of God. It is not the Son of Joseph, but you have been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And we know that they attempted to convince people, their friends and family and and townspeople and neighbors, that, that this son that would be born was in fact born of God. And obviously we see that they failed at that goal. They were unsuccessful to convince people that this was God's own son. We don't know much about Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters. We see in this passage that he did have several, and we know that none of them believed in Jesus' testimony. None of them came to faith in Jesus. Imagine that for a moment. His siblings thought that he was insane while he walked the earth and, and proclaimed to be the Son of God and even preached with authority. All of, out of all of his siblings, we hear of only one, James, who wrote the book uh, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, James, his half-brother, coming to faith only after Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus' own siblings thought he was crazy, didn't believe in him. Even after he rose from the dead, those in his family abandoned and rejected him. Would it sound strange if I told you that by reading all of the gospel narrative and all the gospel accounts of all the life of Jesus, we can conclude that no one who has ever had an encounter with Jesus merely just liked him. It's true, no one just liked Jesus. No one ever met Jesus and said, oh, what a nice man he is, and then went about their life unchanged. Not even once. We're not told of a single story where that happens. When people met Jesus, they encountered the great trilemma of, uh, of C.S. Lewis as he explains the trilemma when we encounter Christ. A dilemma is a, a, a struggle and tension between two options. A trilemma is three options. You see, when we encounter Christ, we only have three options. One, we have to say that he is a liar because he claimed some very strong things. He claimed to be God and have the power uh, to forgive sins and raise the dead. They must either, either agree that he is a liar or they must say that he is a lunatic. You see, he's crazy, he's insane, and therefore shouldn't be trusted. We shouldn't trust people who are out of their mind. Or the only option left is we must treat him as Lord. We must agree in what he says, believe it, rest in it, give our life over to him, repent of sins, and trust him, bowing down to worship Jesus as he is, surrendering our whole life to his authority. That's the trilemma. Those are the only three options. So no one merely responded to Jesus in a moderate way. They either crucified him or they crowned him as king. They hated him or they truly loved him. And here we see the pain of rejection that Jesus experienced far before the rejection on the cross and the betrayal uh, in the days leading up to his crucifixion. Even here, we see that he has rejected his whole life by people that knew him the most. Jesus never engaged in ungodliness, but the people of Nazareth 
They knew his family. They knew his background. They knew the rumors and heard of them their whole life. And all of those things made it enough for them to question his authority and his identity. And Jesus was met with unbelief, and unbelief bred hostility, and hostility bred rejection. And Jesus tells us that the same will happen to us as we come in the name of the Lord, preaching and proclaiming the same message, the same good news of the kingdom of God that is made manifest through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we will be met with the same unbelief, the same hostility, and the same rejection. But here is the problem for us. If you have ever uttered these words or uttered this phrase, I just don't want to offend anyone in my life. I don't want to be the enemy of anyone. I want people to like me. There is a problem with that phrase for a few reasons. First, if everyone liked you and you didn't offend anyone, then you would be accomplishing something that Jesus never did. I just want you to think about that for a second. Another thing is that if you are, are wanting those things, then you're centering your mission around not following Jesus and being faithful to him, but rather following the idol of comfort and people-pleasing. And so you're following not Christ and obedience not to his commands, but rather to this fear of, of loving others, the fear of man. And third, if everyone agrees with you, then you're really never, ever going to be truly loved by anyone. If you can never be offended, if you can never be corrected, never contradicted, if someone can never disagree with you, then you can never truly be loved. Because what we want is not a real relationship where we're sharpened by others, but we want that person to just worship us to love us unconditionally, to worship us, to join us unconditionally, and to never question anything we have ever said. And when we desire the worship of others, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. And God will not share his glory with anyone. He will not share his honor with anyone. We're surrounded in this world by people who want nothing to do with Jesus because they don't want to be contradicted. They don't want to ever be told that they are wrong. But the reason they don't want that is really the same reason that none of us want it. And especially the reason we don't want it, we didn't want it before we came to know in Jesus. That their, heart, their hearts have not been opened. Their souls had not been invaded by the power of the Holy Spirit. None of us have an encounter with Jesus to, that leads to faith and trust in Him and an ability to hear his, his words to us so much so that we would confess and repent without the Holy Spirit renewing our hearts and drawing us in to Him. And so the ability to, to hear that contradiction, to hear the confrontation, is a gift from God. It's a mercy of God. It is a work that only God can do in our lives. And Jesus wants us to know that if we want a real, loving, authentic, life-changing encounter with him, then we will encounter the same kind of opposition, the same kind of rejection. You will be offended. You will have some people that will just not like you. And instead of depending in our life on, on the prospect of avoiding rejection, we are to depend on something far greater. We are to depend on God 
This brings us to the next point in our passage. Jesus shows us not only is rejection inevitable, but dependency on God is a discipline that does not come naturally to any of us. The story of Jesus' rejection in Mark 6 quickly goes on to Jesus' instruction to send out his disciples two by two and how they should act when they are rejected. And this is intentional. It's not by accident. He wants them to know that the message of the gospel preached in the world will be met with opposition and not be welcomed with open arms. And it's a strange lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples on what it looks like to depend on God every moment of the day, especially as we are doing the work of God, living the life he's called us to live, and proclaiming the good news to the world. Recount with me Jesus' instructions to his disciples in chapter 6, starting in verse 7. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them not to take to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. What a strange set of instructions. Some might see this as a prescription for God's people to live a life of poverty, minimalism, all the days of their life in order to be faithful to God. But that's not what he is instructing us to do. This set of instructions goes way back to the Exodus story. The four items that God's disciples, Jesus' disciples, are instructed to carry with them are the same identical items that the Israelites were instructed to take with them as they fled slavery in Egypt to the new life that they were to live with God on full dependency with him. You see, God is calling his people out of a life of slavery where they are leaving all of their possessions and everything they knew into a new life where they would depend on God, trust in God, walk with God all the days of their life. And the items they took were symbolizing their lack of possession, which required literally a daily dependence on God, a moment-by-moment Dependency on God for all of their provision, for their food, water, shelter, clothing, safety, relationship. God was going to provide it all. And they were to trust Him and to walk with Him. And what stands out in this instruction is not so much what Jesus told them to take, but rather what He told them not to take. Don't take bread, no bag, no money, only one tunic, not two. No bread. They would have to depend on God's daily movement in their life for their own food. No bag. He's talking about a beggar's bag. They, they were, he was forbidding them from, from going off from there in the comfort of their town. And he was forbidding them from begging for food or money to meet their needs. No extra clothing. Why would someone need two layers? Well, it was customary for someone to have a, an outer clothing, a tunic, and then a, carry another tunic on a long journey so that they would use that outer tunic as a blanket as they slept outside on their journey. Jesus is teaching them, you're not going to need that outer tunic. You will find shelter. You're not going to be sleeping outside. You will depend on me to find shelter through the hospitality of people that you meet along the way. You see, Jesus is teaching them a lesson that every follower of Jesus must know. 
you're going to have to depend on your Father in heaven at every point in your life. You're not to take anything extra with you, not even a coin purse, not even a morsel of bread, to rely totally on the divine providence of God worked out through the generosity of others that you meet along the way. This is astonishing. It's radical. It is a radical kind of daily, moment-by-moment dependency on God. And if we look at this command and instruction from Jesus through the lens of American evangelicalism, we will be confused by this. We might even conclude that Jesus' instructions to them are cruel and unloving. If Jesus truly loves his disciples and wants his disciples to succeed in life and in their mission that Jesus has called them to, he should give them all that they need, all the provisions, many provisions. He should fill up a backpack of all that they need with food and water and money and and, uh, coupons and uh, protection and weapons, whatever they need. He says, I love you and I'm giving you everything you need to go about your way. If Jesus really cared for them, he would give them an extra tunic, an extra blanket for their comfort. If Jesus really cared for them, he would protect them from the rejection of others. He would steer them clear of hostility. He wouldn't let them come along the path of any jerks and snobs along the way. If Jesus cared for them, he would do all that he could to make them comfortable. That's what a loving friend does, isn't it? That's what a good father does. If Jesus loved them, And this is what we say to ourselves, if Jesus loves me, he would give me all that I need in this life to have a life of happiness, health, prosperity, and comfort. A, A loving friend would never let a friend suffer. A loving parent would never let a child hurt. A loving teacher would never let a student struggle. This is the message of the American Christianity. It is not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we see here? It's startling if you take a moment to look at it clearly. Not only does Jesus not equip his disciples with worldly provisions by limiting their possessions, he all but assures that they will come into struggle in their life. We might say that if Jesus loves them, he will never let his disciples come into harm's way. But here, listen to what I say, Jesus makes sure that they do come into trouble. He makes sure that they struggle. And this is difficult. Because if you and I had it our way, we would never write suffering into our story. We would never include any kind of struggle into our story. We would never suffer. We would never be rejected. We would not meet a single person if we wrote our own story who didn't like us. We would never write our story in such a way that we would ever need to ask anyone for help especially God, because we would be completely self-sufficient, completely independent, 
standing on our own two feet, fully capable of accomplishing everything in our life just with what we have, we would never ask God for anything. And here is where the problem lies. If that is true, we would never be driven to the point of ever falling on our knees, crying out to God for help, ever saying, God, I need you every moment. I need you every hour. Without you, I am completely hopeless. No one ever wants to be driven to that kind of despair. No one. And Jesus is assuring that his disciples do. Listen here. Jesus loves you too much to give you the life that you have always wanted. Because the life that you've always wanted is a life that would never need Jesus. Isn't it? Jesus knows better. He loves you too much. He cares for you too much. He knows that ultimately what you and I need is to depend on Him. Depend on His power working out in our life. Moving us along the journey. Trusting in His sovereignty. Resting in His providence. Don't underestimate how God intends to use your lack of provision to accomplish all that He intends for your life. Jesus' disciples were better off because of their lack of provision rather than in what they had. Do you see this? Our worldly resources often give us the illusion that we can prevent suffering in our lives and therefore prevent our need for God. But we cannot. And our worldly possessions, even our personality, our intelligence, our good looks, our know-how, our righteousness, Jesus shows us that all that we need is to depend on Him. The fulfillment of the will of God in our life does not depend on the perfection of our character or on our record, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus Christ in our life. He calls His disciples and He sends them out with His authority and power. We need God And needing God does not come naturally to us. We are naturally predisposed to not want or need God. So Jesus takes away the safety net from his followers so that they would be forced to depend on him. If they're hungry, they must seek out relationship. If they are thirsty, they must depend on others. If they are needing to sleep and find comfort, they are to rest in the hospitality of others. They cannot do it alone. And this is God's mercy. It is nothing but His kindness. So Jesus is telling them, people will reject you and despise you, but go proclaiming the message of good news to all who who will listen and learn to be dependent on me in every moment for all of your needs. And finally and most importantly, Jesus tells them how to look past 
the rejection and hostility of others. He now tells them how to do that. When opposition does come, when rejection does come, when the hatred of the world does come, what are they to do? Jesus says, shake it off. Now, I, I, I want to, you to know I wasn't planning on quoting Taylor Swift in this sermon, but now I feel somehow compelled to kind of go deeper and to explain myself. What is the message in this song, this popular song, Shake It Off? Here's the message. If someone doesn't like you, if someone doesn't like your style, if someone doesn't like your life choices, your habits, your decisions, your message, if someone doesn't like who you are or how you live your life, shake it off. Just shake it off, right? Now, I don't have a congregation present at the moment, but I have to assume and hope to assume that some of you are at least chuckling at home as you gather. Do you see what Jesus tells us here? Jesus says, as you go to a town, and if your message is not received, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them, as judgment against them. Shake it off as a way of judging them. Jesus and Taylor Swift are actually saying the same thing. Now stay with me for a second. They are saying, you can look past the rejection and hatred and judgment of others and not be afraid. You can. You can look past the rejection. You can make it. You can get past it. When the rejection of other human beings and the hatred of other human beings and people don't like you, you can get past it and not be afraid. But, now here, here's the big but, here's the difference between the worldview of the world manifest in that song and the worldview of the Bible. And the difference is found in how and why can we look past it. The world says... We don't need to be beat down and lose ourself and our identity because of the rejection of others. Because you know why? Forget them. Who cares? You don't have to listen to a word that they say. Who cares what other people think? You never have to give an answer to anybody but yourself in your life. The only way then to look past the rejection and hatred of others is to make yourself big in your own eyes and make that person small in your eyes and therefore become a snob. The only way to get past the rejection of others in the worldview of our culture is just to become a big snob and think you're better than them. I don't care what they think. I know who I am. They're wrong. I'm right. They're a loser. I'm a winner. I'm going to shake it off. I'm not even going to care about them. Haters going to hate. Heartbreakers going to break. Fakers going to fake. I'm just going to shake, right? Okay, now I'll give you a second. Gather back. We'll focus. Now, I'm sorry if I ruined that song for you. Nothing wrong with singing along to it. Nothing wrong with dancing to it. Just do not follow it as a worldview. Jesus is saying that we can look past the rejection and hatred and ridicule of others for an entirely different reason. And it's because we have been spared from an even greater rejection. We have been spared from the rejection of God, the ridicule of God, the betrayal of of God. We have been spared from the hatred of God. So any less rejection, any less hatred that comes our way, we can look past it and not be afraid. 
Remember when Jesus' family, his friends, his hometown people rejected him? It's It's a foreshadow of the ultimate rejection that Jesus would experience on the cross. Jesus says that he is the stone that the builders rejected. It's an old prophecy in the Old Testament. Jesus, when he teaches, he takes this prophecy on himself. He says, you know how the builders would choose a stone, and if there was any imperfection in it, they would throw out the stone? I am that stone, except I am not imperfect. I am perfect. There is no blemish in me. I have never done any single thing ungodly, but I have been rejected in your place. Because you do carry sin. You do have on you the wrath of God rests because of your sin. You are full of of judgment from God. But I will be rejected so that you will be accepted. The one appointed by God to save his people, Jesus Christ, was rejected and despised by God for your and my sins. Do not confuse Jesus' rejection that he experienced in his life and on the cross merely as an example that we should follow. As if to say, Jesus was a good man and he was right and people hated him. So even though people hate me, I can be like Jesus and I can still kind of suck it up and I can get on with my life just like Jesus did. That's not what happened here. His rejection before the world and before God the Father on the cross is not merely an example for us to follow. His rejection is a substitute for your rejection before God. So when anyone else rejects us, we see that Jesus was rejected in our place and we do not have to bear the pain and burden of anyone's rejection and hatred. Jesus was rejected by the Father so that we would be accepted by the Father. Jesus faced the ultimate rejection so that we can have the ultimate acceptance. The primary purpose of Jesus' miracles, his authoritative teaching, and all that he had done was not to wow the crowds. It wasn't to make us look on what he did and feel amazed. It was to lead us to faith in him was to authenticate the message that he came to bring, to convince us that everything he said is true, that he is for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? So his disciples proclaim the same message that Jesus goes out to proclaim and invites them He he invites them to respond in the same way that we are to respond. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. There is no such thing as an indifference to Jesus. A confrontation with Jesus that says, what a great guy, and then goes about our way. We must reject him or worship him. We must bow down and worship him, giving him our life, confessing of our sins, turning from a life of disobedience to a life of obedience and trust and resting in him, or we must walk away from him entirely. Jesus promises to those who respond to him with belief and trust. He promises the forgiveness of sins and a new life through the Spirit. And together, the forgiveness of sins and new life through the power of the Spirit that indwells us, it it gives us the life that you and I are searching for, a life free from the guilt 
of sin, a, free, a life free from the rejection of God, and a life where we know that we have the affirmation and affection and friendship of God. He looks at us as if we have never sinned because Jesus took our sins for us. What a God. What a Savior. There is absolutely nothing that we need more desperately in our life than Jesus. And when we have him, we have all that we need.